For the Voiceless focused on child protection advocacy, providing a voice for children in need and the NPOs that care for them. Their goal is to ensure that abused, abandoned, orphaned, neglected and vulnerable children are cared for and their rights promoted. For the Voiceless researches children's issues, networks across children's rights organisations, academics, legal experts and those caring for in-need children to find out what is working and what isn't, challenges those in authority and motivates for changes to policy where necessary. Above all, the goal is to allow children to tell their stories and in hearing them to change the way that we care for and respond to the nation's most vulnerable. The woman behind For the Voiceless is the esteemed uh, Robin Wilson Foster, who I also consider to be a colleague of long standing, so it's lovely to have you Robin. She's a dedicated wordsmith with a background in social sciences, learning and strategic consulting, and opted out of corporate life nine years ago to work as a child rights activist and start For the Voiceless. As an adoptive mom to a beautiful daughter, she has a special interest in adoption and the needs of South Africa's most vulnerable children. She's a regular contributor to the Daily Maverick, a member of the Child Protection Committee at the South African National Child Rights Coalition, and a finalist in the Isu Elitle competition for journalism about children for her series on missing children. She uses her many words to tell children's stories, for education about what affects them most and to motivate her for changes in policy. You can find her online if you follow the links on our social media. Welcome, Robin. Thanks, Luke, and thanks, Karen. So, there is two concepts that have come out of your introduction. The first of these is the idea for the voiceless. And then the second one is a series that you wrote on missing children. What gave rise to the link between those, uh, the idea that children don't have voices and the fact that children are missing? So I think it's probably fair to say that South African children as a whole, and not just poor children, but um, children in general, are muted in many specific areas of their lives. So... Um, many areas where they should have influence, they have very little say. And so that's across the board, but it's particularly true of impoverished children, of abused children, of children who are in need of care and protection. And what I found was that the children who are most muted are the children who are missing. So that kind of goes without saying because they don't have an ability to be able to tell their story. And in many ways, those stories are important because they speak to some of the vulnerabilities within our society. They speak to some of the reasons why children um, go missing. And again, we're not just talking about impoverished children, but children from wealthy families. Um, and also, we, we need to be able to understand those factors so that we can look at solutions, both at individual levels, at family levels, and also at national level as well. Now, we were, I mean, we're in the 16 days of activism for children and there's talks of the 365 days of activism. But I mean, my, my experience is that, you know, 
adults are not really interested in protecting the rights of children. You know, there's a lot of sort of very nice rhetoric around it, but you also get the comeback of, oh, now children have too many rights and no responsibilities, and as a result, you know, they get in away with uh, all kinds of things. You know, please, for heaven's sake, don't teach them about sex, but you can beat them if, uh, if you so choose. So, so there is no coherent message around how children can find their voices despite this whole best interest of children concept and this laudable idea of child participation but it appears that children participate in a way that's a show and tell exercise to show that children can be show, it's like show and tell sort of policy tourism absolutely and i think that's one of the reasons why i encourage children to tell their own stories so unfortunately in the missing children articles a lot of the, the stories had to be told um, or narrated by by parents, by community members. Uh, but in the sense, we get a picture of what makes a little child in South Africa or, or even a teenager go missing. And it, it is an opportunity to debunk a lot of the common misconceptions around why children go missing. In terms of the studies, a lot of it is poverty-related. But our home alones are not just children who are who are poor. So we have lots of children in this country who are well, they're well parented, they're policed in many senses in their in their spaces at home, but in their own personal life behind their closed door, they are living a life that their parents are not aware of. So they're also home alone. It was actually quite shocking for me um, during the research into the articles to listen to some of the stories of children who were sitting in um, squatter camps, for example. And there were a number of children, there was particularly, there were two 12-year-old children that really touched my heart. There was one little girl uh, who um, was born with albinism, and she was speaking about the isolation of trying to feel safe but feeling like she was targeted and not having the support system around her to take care of her. And then a little boy who uh, has, the, the community explained that he, um, he has self-identified um, as homosexual since the time that he was very small. And he has been targeted by adult men in his community since he can remember. And he speaks about the horror of going to find his drunk mother at the Shabin after dark and feeling completely isolated. Children playing in spaces where they are not safe. It's just, it's an, it's an epidemic. And even when parents are trying to do the right thing, we look at what's happened with, with lockdown and with COVID and we see situations where, where government has reintroduced uh, work but not reintroduce school. So you've got lots of parents who would have wanted to take care of their children, who are now sitting in a situation where their children are home alone. And in many cases, they're left with invidious decisions. Where do they put them? Do they entrust them to a stranger? What was really interesting also as part of this research was the number of children who said that our family believe that Ubuntu is still a thing. They've grown up with Ubuntu and you can now, uh, you, can, you can call on a neighbor, on somebody, a community member, just to look after your child when you go to work or when you're, when you're away from home. And uh, what they said specifically was how often they feel unsafe. 
So this thing of our children feeling like they are, they are lost, that they're unparented, that they need, they need that concerted effort from parents to make sure that they are safe was a very important theme that came out across the board and across economic levels. And the interesting thing I'm seeing, because I've always referred to some interesting things under lockdown, as you can imagine, and post-lockdown as well, and the majority of my referrals came from very, very wealthy families. I'm not talking about middle-class families, I'm talking about wealthy families. Where what did, what did happen, you talk about safe places to play and living in a squatter camp or you know, other names, like just to make a point, like living in a ghetto. Online is exactly the same. Because they are not safe places, they are not safe people, they are targeted by adult men. I mean, everything you said about being uncared for in an informal settlement with no adult care holds entirely true for being online. So that is so true, Luke. And I think we're seeing that more and more and more. So your child is in their secure estate, in their bedroom, and you think, oh, my child's quite safe. And how do we create a space, and we've spoken so much around languaging and the words to use, where children are confident enough to speak out to an adult and say, this is what's happening to be online, be it cyberbullying by their peers, or what we're seeing a real emergence of, it's always been there, but we're just seeing so much more of it, where men are, I don't know, Luke, is it mainly men are, are pretending to be friends and then are eliciting certain information from children and then using that information to blackmail them. So those children are in a very, very scary, scary space. Look, I think that the thing that is, it, it is certainly, you know, from our experience, it is mostly men. I mean, men are unequivocally the, the biggest consumers of uh, pornography on the planet. And the the difficulty, I think, is that when we talk about for the voiceless and when we talk about missing children, Often we assume that the that poverty is the only driver. But Robin, what you've done is you've identified three further drivers. And I think maybe if we can go into that, because what we don't want to do is create the impression that we're talking about poor people. Absolutely. So what was really interesting is I read an international study which ranked the four top reasons why children go missing. And although poverty was the top reason, it was only marginally more important than the second issue, which was dysfunctional and abusive families, which as we know, we have an epidemic of in South Africa. And then the third issue, which was also really significant, was unparented children. And I mean, we know statistically, we've got about 20% of children in this country who live with neither mom nor dad. We also know from the Lancet study that we've got 95,000 children who lost a primary caregiver during COVID. Plus, we actually don't have statistics on how many children are sitting in institutions and children's homes. And that is a very significant contributor to children going missing. A number of the stories that I tracked over this series of articles showed how being in an institution was a key contributor to children going missing. So again, the, those two top issues relate to are we parenting our children? How are we parenting our children? And interestingly enough, I did um, a series of, of interviews with children and asked for their opinion on what it was that made them feel unsafe and what it was that made them feel safe. And there were some beautiful quotes, in fact, from Luke's Fight with Insight Children. Um, and one of them was, I feel safe when my mom is holding my hand. 
I know I can't be taken then. And it was just, it, it just actually gives me goosebumps thinking about it because what it does is it speaks of, of a solution that comes from having strong, cohesive families to take care of our children. Interesting enough, the fourth factor in that study that's, that I mentioned was undocumented or migrant children. And again, we know we have an epidemic in this country. The Children's Institute estimate that they're about 500,000 children that are undocumented, but there are statistics, for example, that have been shared by the Department of Education that indicate 1.1 million learners mm -hmm. alone, which would mean that the number would be far, far higher if we look at, um, at all children in this country. And as you know, those children are particularly vulnerable mm -hmm. um, to all forms of abuse, but, but particularly to going missing. Robin, another misconception that you address in, in your articles, and we will add a link um, um, in our social media to the articles because it is imperative that you read them. It's not important. It is essential. Um, is the fact that you don't have to wait 24 hours to report a missing child. And I think very often um, we see it in the movies. Oh, no, you have to wait 24 hours. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, we do go to apathetic police people who will say that in order just to not have to fill out the paperwork. But you do not have to wait 24 hours to report a missing child. Absolutely. The minute you know a child is going missing, then you need to go and report. And I think some of the saddest stories that, that were relayed to me um, during the series related to children who could have been found had either their parents, but quite often the police, acted more quickly. So there is an imperative, I think, for us as a society to look at police training around this issue, um, to, um, to, to help with that understanding of how important it is for action to be taken quite quickly. But also what happens is there's a the high degree, I think, of concern amongst many community members as to whether the police will be a safe environment for them to tell their story, whether they will be turned away. Many parents speak about getting community members involved with helping to try and find the child first. And in, I think in many instances, there was one particularly sad story that I was told, and in fact, this was the story that actually started the Missing Children series because I was so moved by it, of a little girl called Akani. She um, was in a squatter camp in the south of Johannesburg. Um, she was playing on a Saturday afternoon and her mom was doing her washing and Akani and her big sister would come and they would check in and just make sure that mom was still there and she would make sure that they were still there. And suddenly Akani didn't come and she didn't come and she didn't come. And her mother got frantic and she inspired the community who then went to the police and they said, we don't have a missing person's um, police officer who can help you, you can come back on Monday. And so her daughter was missing for two full days before there was a police report, before there was any kind of action to find her. And now that was 2017 and she still hasn't been found. And that case just broke my heart mm. because I firmly believe that if there had been action sooner, Akani could have been found. It's the trauma that those parents live with daily. You know, the tragedy of finding a child's body, you have a certain amount of closure. But when a child is just missing and you never, ever find them, as a parent, you sit every moment of every day with what has happened to my child. Is my child okay? How's my child being treated? And I, I cannot imagine anything worse than that. I really, really can't. 
Absolutely. So Clara, who is Akani's mum, uh, she, she broke down during our interview and she said that she wishes that her daughter had never been born because to live with this sense of hopelessness. And unfortunately, there is no real psychological help for moms in, in a situation like Clara. She's living with depression. She's angry. Um, she's, she confessed to being abusive towards her remaining children. And, and she must feel very um, at a loss. Absolutely. Absolutely, because there is just nothing that she can do. And in fact, when, as part of this process, I got her a, a missing child poster with Missing Children SA, and she had to go and get a report number from the police station. And they were so rude to her. They were just incredibly uncaring. And that's and I think that's just so sad because it is also one of the reasons why many parents choose not to report their children missing. So Robin, this is all quite devastating, I think is the sort of best way to describe it. So you're now sort of cross poles in other contexts in the world and there is an attempt now from your role at um you know, kind of at the Daily Maverick and storytelling and NGOing and parenting, there is there is people trying to get children seen and heard. And your involvement in the, in fact, there was a meeting today, uh, your involvement in the South African National Children's Rights Commission, or committee, sorry, not commission, the committee, how do you see that as contributing to the bettering of children's plight? Because my experience has been that all we do is scream at government for not doing what government is supposed to do. I think that is a failing, and, and I think that's an accurate assessment, Luke. Um, I, I guess my, my hope is that in concert we can amplify the issues and also be more cohesive in the way that we respond to what government is doing. So my hope is that that the, the committee can be used to lobby government around specific issues. And um, obviously they will be decided in concert, but I think that there are a number, some of them that we've mentioned today, like undocumented children, uh, which was the focus of that discussion this morning. Um, for myself, the issue of abandonment is an enormous one and the possibility of getting a, an amendment to the Children's Act, which would allow for the safe relinquishment of abandoned children. So in other words, if a mom chooses to abandon her child in a way that is uh, unsafe, she would still be committing an, a crime and it would still be illegal. But if she were to place a child safely in a baby saver or hand a child over, she would be able to do that anonymously and that would be a guarantee of that child's safety. And because we're seeing such huge numbers of, of abandoned children that are dying or ending up with horrific disabilities as a result of um, being abandoned unsafely, that change to the law could significantly help save lives. So that is a big one. One of the other ones is the issue around adoption, which is particularly problematic in South Africa. Um, and there are a number of very valid reasons why um, government is concerned about adoption. Having said that, if we go back to the discussion we were having about why children go missing, if you look at the fact that unparented children is a key contributor towards children's vulnerability, we have an imperative as a nation to 
put children into families. And if we look at our adoption statistics over the last 10 years, they're dire. Um, I think um, it, it was 2019 to 2020, so just before we entered into the pandemic, we had just over a thousand adoptions in South Africa in that calendar year. And we, we know that that has decreased even more since COVID. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, for those children who cannot enter families, what is happening to them? And what about all the vulnerabilities that come from institutional care or insecure parental care? Because many of those children are sitting in extended families and those extended families are doing their best to take care of them. But for many of them under very dire circumstances. And so we've got to ask the question of, if we believe that adoption is un-African, or there are other reasons why we feel that adoption is not something that we should be um, pursuing in this country, what is our alternative? And to be frank, I'm not certain that we have an alternative. And then the, the question I'm struggling with at the moment, and maybe this we can get onto the agenda for people to think about, is the fact that I'm starting to see more and more young people act out sexually against each other. And the cause of that in the olden days, because I'm old, uh, was that they'd been exposed to some form of abuse themselves and they were abuse reactive or trauma reenacting. Now it's simply reenactment of the porn they see. It's like watching a movie. And the problem is, is that they're going to very, very dark places. I mean, the things that young people come to me that they have seen, I mean, I've seen as crime scene photos. So the context I've seen them in have been crime scenes, you know, child pornography. And they, th this is what is coming up. So for me, the framing of the Internet has become a very interesting thing. These naughty boys who are going and they're looking at porn, you know, porn of boys will be boys and, you know, they look at porn and whatever. The, the difficulty, what I'm seeing at the moment, is the same traumatic sexualization reactions in their trauma and their behavior and their acting out as I saw with children who had abused, so have been abused. So what I'm, I'm seeing is that the internet is grooming our young children, literally, and in that grooming is actually sexually abusing them. So the internet is sexually abusing our children. It's a form of non-contact sexual abuse, but the outcome is identical. And it just appears people are saying, ah, you know, it's pornography, porn, you know, boys will look at porn, ah, it's part of development. It is not. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, it's traumatic to even listen to that, <laughs> Luke, and I'm not sure what the what the solution to that is. I think it is something that we in concert need to be working towards. And again, it's, it's, it's acted out in, in many different ways. So the, the problem is, is that because children are not heard, many of them would like to be able to express how this is affecting them, but they have no outlet for talking about it. And I think part of it is actually uncovering these issues and making them normalizing those conversations around those things that are, are that in the, the private and the darkest spaces are changing who our children are. Absolutely. And I think that's where writers like you are, are so powerful because you can give parents a script to think about it and then they can give their children a script to think about it. Because what, you know, what I'm seeing at the moment is, and we talk about people fighting for the rights of children, 
you know, we, we've got people fighting comprehensive sexuality education in school on the basis that it's an infringement on their freedom of religion to interpret their religion and spare the rod and spoil the child. Now, for me, you know, those kind of conversations are not in the best interests of children. And the difficulty is, is that the people who say it is truly believe it is. And I think that's where we need to have courageous conversations and the kind of articles you write that you and I've engaged in are really the starting point. So, Karen, do you have anything to wrap up with? I don't understand what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> so are you saying we should have comprehensive education, sex education Absolutely. in schools? Absolutely. And people are fighting against that, Absolutely. which is what we've seen. Because we, we, we also have had a, a conversation on teen suicide. Mm -hmm. And there seem to be conversations that schools are, or even parents, parents and schools, are really moving away or shying away from, petrified of. Because they think if you talk about sex, children will have sex. Mm -hmm. And they think if you talk about suicide, children will commit suicide. And we are needing to have those conversations. What's come out in every single conversation we've had is that children do not have the language and they do not have the words. So only when we start to have these courageous conversations can we give children the language, we can give them the words, and we can also give them the resources. Children are curious. We are paying a fortune for education in a lot of cases, and yet there are certain matters we just don't want our children to be educated on. I think we've got to trust them a little bit more than that, but give them the correct resources, not Pornhub. Give them resources where they'll actually find good information rather than the information that we're so afraid of. Absolutely. And I think the thing is, you know, one of the things I try and do in, the, in my articles is walk that fine line that says there are different opinions. People have valid opinions. People have valid concerns. But in the end, what is in the best interest of our children? And if we are not promoting the best interests of our children, we need to, from a self-interest point of view, look at it as to what is going to happen to our society going forwards. But more than that, what about these individual children? And that, for me, is one of the reasons why I love to tell the stories. Because once you have seen a child and you've heard their story, it's very difficult to shy away from it. Mm. Um, as we sort of head to the end, I'd just like to touch on what you and um, Talia, who we have interviewed um, and is a colleague of, of, of all of us. Last year, you almost did um, a, a series of photographs of children, photographs. Why don't you just touch on that and your learnings through um, through what you and Talia did last year for 16 Days of Activism? Because even though it was last year, I think we I know we all think every every day should be um a day for activism for children but just just to touch on that in closing we will add a link to that as well so those photographs were so powerful they actually came from individual quotes um, that children gave us and we spread the net quite wide in terms of we we asked children across different provinces across different racial and class groups and across different uh, different genders we were specifically looking for what their experience of COVID and lockdown has been and the, the, the pain that was evident in so many of the stories. There were, there were moments of hope. Um, some children treasured the time with their families, but the loss that they were experiencing, just in terms of loss of, of, of hopes and dreams, loss of family members, loss of security, uh, loss of hope for me was a huge thing. 
and this incredibly talented graphic designer went and she added images to them and they are so powerful because again you can't ignore it and if we look at policy in this country COVID is probably one of the greatest examples of where government did not take account of what children needed and so we need to hear so that we can we can engage with that so thank you Robin and I'm just going to try and sum up things in two sort of take-home advocacy messages. The, the first is that children's adversity knows no boundaries. It's a case of aramisnifaili, you know, it's mm-hmm. because you poor doesn't, gives you different risk factors, but adversity doesn't know boundaries. And then I think that the closing thought for the 16 days would be it's not about the children, it's about this child. So thank you very much as always for your time and your thoughts and we look forward to uh, working with you going forward. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Cara. Thank you, Robin.